the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Think about it. Today, modern technology, we've got far greater tools, resources, methods, and mechanisms available to we as the church today than ever before in history. Imagine the challenge it must have been for the disciples, for the early church, to spread the gospel to Judea, then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Absence, highways, transportation, internet, telephones, television, radio stations like this, all of that. None of it existed at the beginning of the church, and yet we saw a phenomenal explosion of the gospel of Jesus Christ all across the then modern world. And yet today, with far greater tools and resources, every before and any time in history, we are, at least in the West, a church that is frail, fractured, faltering, and some might even argue failing. Why is that? What about the major difference between some churches that today look more like the Book of Acts than the church organization in the West? And is it a question of organization, or is it really an organism? that lives and breathes the heartbeat of God's commandment for we to go and make disciples. We wrestle with that question today as we're joined in studio by a familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He is the founder and president of Harvest Evangelism and the International Transformation Network. He is the author of a number of best-selling books, including Anointed for Business, also That None Should Perish, Prayer Evangelism, and Women, God's Secret Weapon, and Transformation. He's got a very special conference coming up here in the Bay Area that will be hosted at Cathedral of Faith in San Jose, October the 13th through the 16th. We'll get more details on that later on in the program. And meanwhile, Dr. Ed Silvoso, wonderful to see you again. Oh, wonderful to see you, Greg, and wonderful to be on KFAX. <laughs> Let's talk about this fundamental question. And, and, and you're, I think, uniquely qualified, Ed, to give us some insights on this because you do work in both North America, South America. You've traveled the globe. You've had a chance to see... The church at its best, Hmm. the church at its worst. And Mm -hmm. the one thing that has always puzzled me, we look today at all these tools we have available to us, and you would think, my goodness, the church of Jesus Christ should be exploding Mm -hmm. across the planet. And yet, and this is not meant to be a blanket accusation against all. No. But to a great degree, we seem to just be limping along. Why so? Well, first of all, let me say, like you, I'm committed to the church, okay? I am not looking down on the church. But like you, I realize, I read the Bible, I look around, and except for a few exceptions, we are not doing that well. So in my next book called Ecclesia, I raise a very interesting question. Why did Jesus speak about the church only twice? And why there is no command in the Bible to plant churches, Mm. much less any teaching on how to do one? I mean, those are very provoking questions. And what I present in that book is that in Jesus' days, and this is the answer or the beginning of the answer to your question, there were three institutions, the temple, the synagogue, and the church. 
The church already existed. Jesus did not invent the church. It was called Ecclesia. The Greeks invented the Ecclesia. It was the assembly of citizens that protected the city. When the Romans took over, they kept the Ecclesia, and when they conquered a territory, they took people captive, made them Romans, and deputized them to rule on behalf of Rome. So not an institution, certainly not a building, mm-hmm. but really an organism, if right. you will. People. And that's why Jesus didn't say, I will build my temple, that was religious. That's right, he didn't say that. I will not build my synagogue, mm-hmm. which was also religious. He said, I will build my Ecclesia. Now, Greg, the disciples must have been shocked by that because the ecclesia was the agency for the occupying power. So what was Jesus after? He said, I will inject the leaven of the kingdom on an existing institution, and I will turn it into the kingdom of God. And today, I have the privilege to lead a network of about 3,000 influencers who lead about 3 million plus people. And they have taken the kingdom to factories, to schools, to government buildings. And guess what, Greg? Not only people have come to the Lord, those institutions have come into the kingdom. The the term occupy until I return yes. comes to mind. Not, not in terms so much of eschatology, no. but in terms of occupying. Yes. Uh, taking hold. Yes. Being present. Yes. Um, injecting yes. into yes. society. Yes. The church, though, at least in recent times and, yeah. and, and, and to the large extent in the Western Hemisphere, has not worked, though, so much on that whole matter of occupancy, per no. se. Um, and it's interesting to note, if you look at the phenomenal growth we see in places like communist China, mm-hmm. in places like Argentina, mm-hmm. where you're from, throughout many portions of mm-hmm. of Central and South America, we find a church that's not necessarily connotated by buildings and conventions mm-hmm. and Presbyterian mm-hmm. bylaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do no membership mm-hmm. drives. Yeah. It's a matter of occupying yes. and making disciples. And that's a big distinction from the institutional church, isn't it? Absolutely. So to complete the thought, so Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia. And what did the church run on in the book of Acts? There are no buildings, there is no professional clergy, although there were apostles and elders and all that, on meals. Every meal became an expression of the ecclesia. So that's why Paul was able to say, beginning in Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum, which is on the border with Italy, I have filled the place and I don't have a single place. Why? Because the early church, Greg, occupied the land. Now, how did we end up with these institutions? Enter King James. He didn't like the Bible translated by Tyndale Mm -hmm. because he translated Ecclesia as assembly. And King James is the creator of the right of kings. We are divinely ordained. He didn't like a local assembly telling him what to do. So he convened 47 scholars, told them, I want a Bible that I can approve. But he gave them 15 restrictions. And restriction number three, are you ready, was you cannot translate Ecclesia as assembly. 
translated as a church. So then we preserve this hierarchical institution. Episcopal form mm-hmm. of government, which in no way I put down. I'm just explaining. That's why you made reference to third world countries, right? Where the church is growing. Uh, uh, communist China. Why? Because there is no centralized institution. Every assembly gathers in the name of the Lord, and they spread out, you know, by word of mouth. This should be very troubling for the the westernized church, shouldn't it? And and I say that because, well, challenging and troubling. And the reason why we use the word troubling, Ed, is because we spend so much time in church growth seminars, church planting seminars. We want to have mega churches. It seems to be all about the design of, of institution and programs and organization, and yet here you have, just in the example of communist China, communism takes over, they shut down all the seminaries, they border up all the churches, they arrest the pastors, they kick out the missionaries. The church goes from conservative estimates, maybe there was 100,000 evangelical believers at the time, who knows? Today we know that even from the official estimates by the government, the evangelical church, those who name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, numbers in the hundreds of millions, yes. absent all of the trappings that we in the West say must be necessary to build a church. Well, and you said must be troubling. I was watching a television program. This was 20 years ago when somebody was commenting on China. These are iconic evangelical leaders, right? And they are reporting on that explosion of growth, right? I mean, without seminars, without anything. And then they said, and now we want to make an appeal to our audience to build a seminary in China. A seminary for what? (laughs) So that they will be like us? I mean, shouldn't we say, let's bring some of those Chinese guys here and teach Mm -hmm. us. But it's not either or. What we have, we have. And that's why this conference that we are having, we honor what we have, but we hope for more. We're going to pause on that note. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about not just the upcoming conference, but also this concept. And, Ed, you talk about it a lot. You've written books on marketplace evangelism. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about exactly what that marketplace comprises of. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about evangelism, so is it an event or is it a lifestyle? Mm -hmm. We'll come back to more of the conversation. Best-selling author Ed Silvoso. Details about the conference right around the corner as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. This upcoming Transform Our World Global Conference is hosted at Cathedral of Faith right here in the Bay Area in San Jose. And you can get details on the web at transformourworld.org. That's transformourworld.org. And, and Ed, there's so much to dissect here. We'd need four hours, and we're obviously going to have to have you come back. I want you to spend a moment, though, before we talk about the conference. And talk about this concept of marketplace evangelism. We think of marketplace, and traditionally, I think many people, their minds go to Wall Street or Main Street. Um, but the marketplace really is, is broadly defined as where people eat, where yeah. they gather, yeah. socialize, work, entertain, or just simply coexist. Absolutely. I wrote a book called Anointed for Business. In that book, I show that God always works in the marketplace. You look at every revival in the Bible. Not a single revival happened in a religious setting. There are 39 miracles in the book of Acts. 38 happened in the marketplace. Jesus, we think of him like a monk, but he was a managing editor, managing partner 
in a family-owned business. His apostles and fishing companies work for the government, medical doctors. That in no way puts down the traditional pastor. I want to go on record saying that. But, but these are ministers, right? Okay. So the first thing to understand marketplace evangelism, we need to understand that in the Bible, there is no separation between sacred and secular. Everything secular that is dedicated to God becomes sacred. sacred, right? Okay. So Paul tells slaves who did the most despicable jobs for masters that were abusive, whatever job you do, do it heartily unto the glory of God. So then we need to understand, Craig, and you do and I do, but this is for the sake of the audience, that everybody is a minister. And the, in the Bible, and I explain this in my book, Transformation, the premier expression of worship is not music. That is the most exquisite. Music is never identified for worship until 2,000 years after the creation of Adam and Eve. So how did they worship God? How did Adam and Eve worship God? By working unto the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Now picture how this changes California now. People go to work on Monday morning and they have the worship switch in the off position <laughs> because they are waiting for music, right? Mm -hmm. They get a break, 20 minutes, iPod, okay, boom, boom, back to the rat race. But when they understand, I am a minister and labor is worship. And you have a taxi driver driving a taxi unto the glory of God. You have a waiter bringing food quietly unto the glory of God. You have a judge passing judgment unto the glory of God. And now look at California from a Google map. Worship all over the place happening there. Does this require a fundamental shift in the way we see and view church? And I ask that question mm -hmm. because for most of us, yeah. Church is a place that we go. Yeah. It's what we do mm -hmm. on Sundays. Yeah. And what you're suggesting is, no, 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 no. Yeah. Church is not a, a, an action or a no. physical location. It is a state of being. It is who we are. I am so excited to have you ask that question because that's the heart of my book, Ecclesia. Church in the Bible is always people. We are the church. Paul doesn't say you go to church. You are the church. You are the ecclesia. So we are the body of Christ. So church is not something we do. Church is something we are. So now picture, people realize, okay, I am a minister, and my job is my ministry. So what do you do? You take the keys of the kingdom. Look what Jesus says. I will build my church, my ecclesia. Mm -hmm. He was very protected. I will build it, and it's my church. What's the implication? Get off the property. But on the way out, pick up the keys of the kingdom. And in the context, it talks about the gates of what? Hell. Hades, or, or hell. Mm -hmm. Do you realize, do people realize, that the keys of the kingdom used to be the keys of Hades and death? that Jesus took away from mm -hmm, the devil, mm -hmm. renamed them, and mm -hmm. all the devil has are gates that he can never open, neither open nor close. So now we take the presence of God, we take the kingdom of God, that is righteousness, making right what was wrong, so people will have peace, 
enjoy, we take it there and those gates collapse. So we've completely flipped this equation. Yeah. We oftentimes will say, and we've heard preacher get up and talk about it and on Sunday morning. Now next week, mm-hmm. would you please invite a guest to come to church? Mm-hmm. Bring them to church. What you're saying is, let's bring church yes. to the marketplace. And keep what we have on Sundays. Absolutely. But that is the locker room. That's what the, the coach, the manager, okay, team, mm-hmm. what we hit there mm-hmm. is playing number 17-B. But right now, the church looks like a final match on the World Soccer Cup. We're in the start of football that season. Need rest and mm-hmm. 120,000 people that need exercise. And so what we do in our conference, what we do in our teaching, in our website, we help the pastors recover the tools to enjoy doing church. The action of what we do on Sunday then becomes the respite. Yeah. It becomes a moment of recovery. Yeah. It becomes the coach yeah. giving insight, yeah. instruction, yeah. playbook, yeah. in yeah. this case, God's word, yeah. and then says, okay, now that I have ordained you, yeah. I have equipped you, yep. I am now sending you yeah. back out into the field, yeah. that field is the marketplace, Absolutely. and let's go win one for Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And look at this. Today, there's a lot of talk about the fivefold ministry. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. I, I'm not need to be critical about it, but I'm a phenomenological theologian. I look at phenomena and I interpret it. In that passage in Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, teachers, the word ministry is not associated with them. It's with the saints. They are given to equip the saints for the saints to do the work of the ministry. So we need to let the Word of God illuminate us, because why there are thousands of pastors going through burnt out? Mm-hmm. Why so many churches shut down every year? Because we are trained to conquer, and we are living in survival well, mode. And the other thought, too, is I think about somebody like uh, Bill Walsh. Yeah. Could he, with the 49ers, ever yeah. won a single yeah. Super Bowl had he been the only guy yeah. on yeah. the field? Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. And I think the reason why so many pastors are burned out, yeah. washed out, and get out of the yeah. ministry yeah. is they're out there trying to do on the field what yeah. the church, what the yeah. body should be doing. Yeah. And I think there's another factor, and I explained this in my book, Anointed for Business. Marketplace people get safe. And we pastors look down on them, like if they are idiots, okay? Until you are like me, you cannot do anything intelligent. These are people, some of them lead corporations, whatever. So all they can aspire to is to become elders. And because that resemblance is there, when they become elders, they really clip us from behind. But when the pastor understands that you and your household shall be safe. In the Bible, household is not only family. It's workplace because people work out. So now you invite the Lord into your heart and into your corporation. That marketplace person becomes a puppy that will ask the pastor, okay, pastor, how do I take the presence of God to my corporation? Rather than, otherwise they become bulls that carry their own china shop with well, I'm them. talking about broadening the sphere of influence. Yes. If in the San Francisco Bay Area is an example, any given pastor on average has a congregation of about 200, 250 people, mm-hmm. a few more, a lot that have a lot less, but that's the average. You can be the leader of a corporation, a small corporation, and have 500 people that have 
extended family within that number, Mm -hmm. the sphere of your influence five days a week could be in the tens of thousands. Now, if the pastor begins to see that this is an extension of what we do in discipleship into the marketplace, suddenly now the sphere of influence is not 200 people Sunday morning. It's tens of thousands of people throughout the seven days of the week. Well, you were asking about marketplace evangelism. In my book, I call it prayer evangelism. Luke chapter 10, Jesus found 70 people and told them, don't curse, bless the people. Mm -hmm. Fellowship with them, minister to them, and then and only then open your mouth and preach. So look, bless, fellowship, minister, proclaim. If a pastor, and I want pastors to be encouraged, I'm a pastor too, okay? If we tell our people you should witness, people will say yes, because how can they say no? But they will not do it, because they they don't feel equipped. But if you tell your congregation, we are going to adopt each one of us 100 people, five houses to the right, five to the left. Every day you bless them in your heart. As the door opens, eat and drink with them. Don't be religious. Be normal. So you bless, you fellowship. When they confide that they have a problem, tell them, I'll include you in my prayers. That's easy. And when they get an answer to prayer, you say, the kingdom of God has come near you. So now you have a pastor with a hundred members in the pew, and his congregation, like you were saying, grew to 10,000 people. But the beauty, Craig, people get safe. We are going to highlight two cases at our conference, a church of 43 members that hit 20,000 last month, and it's growing. And a church in Mexico that had 15 members in Ciudad Juarez, and today has over 10,000 See, this is the paradigm shift from how to do evangelism mm-hmm. that has a starting place, mm-hmm. a middle, and an ending place to how to live evangelism. A lifestyle of evangelism. And, and, and therein lies the real key. And, and what we're really talking about here, and, and let me underscore this, at least some folks have tuned in and say, wow, Ed Silvoso, God bless him, he's invented something new. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, what he's done is he's looked at the book of Acts mm-hmm. and said, okay, what are the high watermarks here? What are the best practices? that were utilized by the original apostles. And how did we watch the church then grow Mm -hmm. and say those principles, if it's the same God today, yesterday, and forever, his same word effective today and forever, then what were the principles put into practice then that were so wildly successful that we can replicate in our own lives today? Not to go build a church, small c, or an institution, but to go out and make disciples. Mm -hmm. This conference, as we mentioned, is taking place October the 13th through the 16th at Cathedral of Faith in San Jose. Information on the web at transformourworlds.org. That's transformourworld.org. We're so close out of time here, Ed, but give me a minute. Give me a snapshot. Who's the conference for? Who should be there? Okay, this is for pastors so that they can see how... Cities are being pastored by other pastors. If for business people, so the, or people in the marketplace, they can be entry level. That's okay. So that they will love Mondays as much as they love Sundays. Mm-hmm. It's for intercessors, Greg. You know, people that say, "Do my prayers make a difference?" You know, and it's also for youth and family. Actually, Friday the 16th, my wife Ruth, Ruth Palau, and I. 
and our four daughters and their husband and our 12 grandkids are doing a family seminar, Transformation on the Family. So it's for everybody. And if people cannot afford time-wise to come four days, on Saturday, October 17, 400 of us will be on a prayer cruise in the San Francisco Bay Area, praying for South Salito, for Oakland, for uh, San Francisco, for Redwood City. So this is for everybody. But I'll tell you one thing. When this conference is over, people will say, I not only heard something, I received something. And let me underscore something that you had mentioned to me off the air without going into too much detail here. And that is this is not simply a workshop about some concepts that we hope might work. In fact, Ed will share... During the course of this conference, again, the dates are October the 13th through the 16th. It's being hosted by our friends down at Kenny Foreman's Church at the Cathedral of Faith in San Jose. He will share real-life examples of transformation that's taking place, not in just in locations like Ciudad Juarez in, in Mexico, but right here, some people say, in the Bay Area? Yeah. No, they can't be here in the Bay Area. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's, this is godless territory here. No, right here in the Bay Area where this kind of transformation is taking place. If you are interested in building his church, in making disciples, in really understanding that evangelism is not what you do but who you are, that the church is not a place that you go to or what you do singularly on Sundays, but what you're, who you are, then this is a conference for you. Again, the dates are October the 13th through the 16th at Cathedral of Faith in San Jose. Complete details available on the web at transformourworld.org. That's transformourworld.org. Ed, we're out of time. Will you come back? I will. We have just, we've not even <laughs> looked at the top of the mountain, let, let alone nicked the, the very peak off by a long shot. When you come back, I also want to talk about your Adopt-A-Cop program. Good, please. It, the yeah. timing of this, well, yeah. it's God's timing. Ed Silvoso with us tonight, founder and president of Harvest Evangelism, the International Transformation Network, the conference Transform Our World. Again, the dates, October 13th through the 16th at Cathedral of Faith in San Jose. Details on the web at transformourworld.org. A timeout, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Prayer indeed does change things, as my next guest has found out. He is Dr. David Levy. He practices neurosurgery in Southern California. His articles have been widely published in a variety of neurosurgical journals, and he's an accomplished speaker and a co-author of a brand new book entitled Gray Matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. And Dr. Levy, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the program this evening. It's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, I found your, your book and your observations on the power of prayer very encouraging, particularly in a day and age when there, there's so much being bandied about concerning what's happened with uh, health care in America. I got into an interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's involved in health care, and there have been some discussion about the fact that uh, more and more he's finding uh, both physicians and hospitals referring to the people that come through their doors as clients, to which I took umbrage and said, you know, uh, you may want to let your colleagues know that we patients don't prefer to be referred to as clients because it just seems to kind of reduce us down to nothing 
nothing more than somebody who helps bring money. And while I understand this is an important part of what needs to be done to, you know, keep the lights on in the hospital and, and to pay, uh, you know, the folks that provide the services that they do to keep us all healthy. Nevertheless, it, it was encouraging to see the perspective that you share inside the pages of Gray Matter, that there are some doctors out there who uh, who still want to have a good bedside manner and who, in fact, uh, don't see us as clients, but rather as patients. That's absolutely right, Craig. Yeah, I, there are uh, quite a number of doctors, I think, that, that really got into medicine because they care and they want to see uh, not just uh, uh, the patient necessarily physically get better, although that is our, our goal. That's what we are doing this for. But we also want to see all aspects of health. The physical is just one aspect. There's emotional, relational, and spiritual health. And we want to address all of those. We want to see the patient as a whole person. Has your profession sort of succumbed to much of what we've seen in the scientific community in, in the last hundred years, say, uh, and that is those that would insist that there needs to be a brick wall as much as we've seen a brick wall between science and so-called religion or science and God? Has there been a trend toward that as well within the medical profession where, you know, it's okay if a patient wants to believe in God, but once they enter into the doctor's office, the hospital, the surgery room, uh, we need to leave God outside and never blend the two? You know, that is, that is how I was trained, honestly. And um, I, I am ashamed to admit there was a time in my career where I, um, I just thought the patients were sort of wasting their time, wasting my time, um, because I believed the surgeon's motto, you know, heal with steel, or, you know, when in doubt, cut it out. And some of those uh, <laughs> uh, things uh, we use to just, uh, it, 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 it's, it, it's not all... Uh, for the patient, we we have our own agendas that, that it, uh, as we move into medicine. Is there some tendency too, maybe? Uh, and I know the, the, the effort and work that needs to go into studying and preparing to become a successful surgeon of any level, certainly at your level, ne- dealing with you know surgery on the brain, neurosurgeon, uh, is not a casual profession by any means. Is there a sense maybe? within some within the medical community that you know why do we want to enter into praying for a patient or praying with a patient prior to a procedure i'm the doctor i'm in charge i'm handling this almost sounding as if at a level maybe while not uh openly recognized almost a subconscious sense of well i'm not going to bring god into this equation because in my operating room i am god you know that is that is um I think very correct. Uh, unfortunately, that is how I saw it as well. I, I, I admit that in the book that I, I really didn't want to bring God in because it, it did sort of make things complicated. I, I wanted, to, I wanted to, to take the credit for the surgery and things like that. I mean, it is a tremendous amount of time you spend learning these highly technical skills, and so you actually would like credit for those. And um, and so to, to pray or to have someone think it was their prayer that did it instead of you, uh, at some level that's potentially offensive. But, you know, for myself, I realized, you know, after I'd done a technically perfect 11-hour surgery and the patient, you know, died the next day of a blood clot, I, 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 that was one of the things that woke me up to say, wow, I can do perfect surgery, but I don't control the outcome. Mm. And so I think we, we, you know, and if we're honest, then we start looking for, well, well, well what else is it? Well, what's happening here? Well, what about uh, the spiritual aspect of, of this case? Because something's happening. Uh, I did everything right, but, um, but I didn't get the outcome I wanted. 
Yeah, there, there, there's that having the, to kind of succumb to the realization that there's something bigger than me behind all of this. And your story is an interesting one because you, as you detail inside the pages of Gray Matter, struggled with this idea of to pray or not to pray and what that would mean and kind of going back and forth. And then, you know, a, a wonderful, almost serendipitous chapter out of the book entitled Physician Heal Thyself. You go in one day to your own dentist. Yeah. <laughs> tell us tell us what happened when when that light came on. Well, I'm sitting in the dentist chair and um my dentist I needed to have a filling replaced. He draws up his syringe full of novocaine and you know, I, Craig, I've spent a long time in training so that I could uh but I didn't have to be on the receiving end of those needles. So you're a neurosurgeon. I mean, come on. This is, this is a minor little dental procedure here, you wimp. Yes, but as, when it comes to injections, remember, it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> <laughs> so I tense up, and my friend sees me. You know, he's trying to hide that needle down below the chair. You know how they Sure, yeah. <laughs> Not quite notice it, yeah. <laughs> so I'm tensing up, and uh, he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he just says a short prayer. He said, you know, God, guide my hands, uh, you know, bless David, something like that. And then I felt this peace come over me. It was, it was just an unusual, I mean, the needle stick still hurt a bit, but it wasn't the same level of apprehension. It wasn't the same anxiety level. And on my way home that day, I said, you know, I really should be praying for my patients. I really feel like the Lord was speaking to me uh, as I went home. And interesting how your dentist didn't say, now, come on, David, you're a trained, experienced physician. You deal with surgeries significantly more, uh, you know, uh, dangerous and, and risky than this on an every single day. Be a man about it. He could have said any of those things. Yeah. But instead of doing that, he chose to do something very, very different. He, he, he recognized, number one, his own need for God and the role that the Lord plays in this process, which ironically, as you point out, suddenly gave you a greater sense of, of comfort. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and so when I went to, to I, I basically said, well, wow, that, you know, that's, as good as Valium. I mean, I should be giving people this. You know, why am I not at least asking them? Not pushing it on them, but I think it's also very important to, you know, to ask. But I tell you what, that first time I decided to pray, I was terrified. I walked up the stairs, my heart was pounding, uh, and of course, my busy preoperative area in the hospital was much busier than this dentist's office, where it was just just he and I. There wasn't even a, a hygienist at that point, and um, so I decided to pray with my patient of the day and I walk up to her bed and everything seems fine she's got her two daughters there but there's a nurse there's a nurse and there's no way I'm going to pray in front of a nurse I mean this this I've decided has got to be a top secret situation I don't want anyone to see me actually offer to pray with someone unless they think I'm you know one of those nuts or something of course you're a senior medical staff you could have just kicked her out of the room <laughs> I, I do right, but I was I was trying to be sort of very smooth about everything uh, while I'm introducing prayer for the first time, and so I'm trying to outlast her. And I'm waiting, and finally I you know say, okay, I'll have to pray another day, and I, I back up to the nurses' station. Uh, I didn't leave. I decided, you know what, I'm not going to give up. Maybe if I wait a few minutes, and so. You know how we do. We pretend to. I've got a page, and I pretended to be on the telephone. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I 
so I wouldn't look too suspicious. It's, I mean, honestly, Craig, it was as if I were going to, you know, casing her room like I was going to commit a crime or something. I'm just sort of looking uh, like I was going to steal the woman's purse. I'm just waiting for the nurse to leave. Finally, finally she leaves. And I, I scurry up, and just before I get to the bed, here comes the anesthesiologist. I turn right back around. <laughs> there was no way I was going to pray in front of another doctor. And, and so I waited a little longer. Finally, they left, and I went up to her bedside, and before anyone else could come, and I said, uh, Mrs. Jones, you know, would you mind if, if I said a prayer with you for your surgery? And she looked at her daughters, and they looked at her and shrugged their shoulders and said, fine. So I, um, I, put, I, I was thinking about putting my hand on her shoulder, but neurosurgeons are not very touchy-feely. We, we generally don't touch people unless they're under general anesthesia. They, uh, they have a covered with that blue drape, and then we, we use a scalpel. So, uh, but, I, but that's what had been done to me. This, my dentist friend had put his hand on my shoulder, and so I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said, uh, her daughters moved in, they bowed their heads, and I just said, uh, God, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain, and you can help me to fix them. And I just asked for skill and for wisdom in this case and for success. In Jesus' name, amen. I looked up. She was weeping. She's wiping tears from her eyes. Her two daughters are, are wiping tears away from their eyes. And I'm thinking, you know, what, what have I done? You know, what, what, what is this power? And, you know, so I did what any surgeon would do at that point. I patted her on the arm, and I left it for the nurse to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and here she came with her Kleenexes, handing them out. And I hit the automatic door button and opened those doors and, and went off uh, to my surgery, which... Uh, honestly, I had more joy in that surgery than I have ever had in my practice before because I, the, the patients look to me as if I'm God, but for the first time in my life I had said, look, I'm not God. I'm very good at what I do, but I'm not God, but I would be willing to talk to him with you if that's what you'd like. Well, and the amazing thing about all of this, too, is that sense that, you know, as much as we as the uh, patients uh, want to know that you know what you're doing, we also want to know that you care, and that's one of the real keys here. If you've just joined our conversation, Dr. David Levy is with us tonight. We're talking about his new book, The Experience of a Neurosurgeon Discovering the Power of Prayer One Patient at a Time, the new book called Gray Matter. A brief time out, back with some closing thoughts from Dr. Levy as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation. Dr. David Levy with us tonight. A look at gray matter. A neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. As you develop the, the faith, the strength, the willingness to kind of take the risk, I guess we'd call it, doctor, and, and begin praying for your patients, what kind of a change have you seen come over, not just your practice, but your own personal relationship with God? Well, Craig, I think that, uh, that so many of us are burned out on medicine, and uh, I think it's, uh, I believe it's partially due to the fact that, well, we are to give glory to God, and I think so much of medicine is designed around getting glory for the physician, getting the referrals for the physician. I certainly have uh, been guilty of that for many years, and so there's something about um, as as we give glory to God, there it, there is a change that occurs in me. I, I you know just somehow the medicine takes on a different flavor. Um, you know, I can give you an example of a uh, a patient named Ron who came in with uh, a, a problem in his in the brain 
he had a, a number of other problems. He was only 40 years old, and he had um, arthritis in his neck and his back. And so I, I began to ask him about um, his emotional health. And, and I asked him something for the first time. I'd never asked a patient this before. I said, uh, Ron, is there someone that you can't forgive? And he's an enormous man. He's this uh, Marine, an enormous guy. And so he sort of looked at me with this, you know, very bold face. And I'm on one of those little rolling stools. And so I'm starting to roll away from him, <laughs> rolling back to the wall. And finally he said, my mother. And I said, excuse me. I thought, you know, maybe his drill sergeant or his father. And he said, no, my mother. And I said, well, well Ron, what, what happened? And he said, well, my dad left when I was young, but my... Uh, my mom, you know, shacked up with a number of different guys, and they would drink, and they would uh, they would get in fights with her. And I got between uh, one of these men and my mother, and I got knocked down the stairs. And I I stood up and I said, "Come on, mom, let's get out of here." And she said, "No, I'm not leaving." And I've hated her. He said, "I've hated her since that time." And I've um, and thirty that was thirty years ago. And so I said, "Wow, Ron, that's that's what I'm looking for." but I'm going to ask you to do something really courageous. I'm going to ask you to forgive her. I said, uh, you know, I want to help you. Would you be willing to do that? So he, he paused for a few moments and then said, okay, yeah, I've, I've, I've hung on to this long enough. And so, you know, I led him through a, a prayer, a declaration of forgiveness um, for his mother and for this guy who uh, knocked him down the stairs. And, and then I said, Ron, um, you've forgiven is there anything that you need to be forgiven for? And he said, yeah. And so he, um, I said, well, who, who forgives sins? And he said, Jesus does. And so he, he began to confess his, you know, his sins. Because, you know, when, when people hurt us, we generally hurt others. That's just the way it happens. And so this man, you know, walked out of my office, you know, like a foot off the ground. He, he felt just emotionally and physically so much better. He still had to have the surgery and the surgery went well but even six months later he was still joyful because I had taken the time now the interesting thing when he when he stood up uh, after I finished uh, the office visit he said uh, he said I feel like calling my mother hmm. and he hadn't talked to her in 30 years and so he, he they had a family reunion I mean you know that little um, conversation had an incredible ripple effect through that whole family because his mother had started going back to church in New York, and he flew back there, and other members of the family were getting together. And, and, and I think as physicians, or even as friends, um, you know, we, can, we can help each other forgive. I mean, if you listen to a friend or a colleague complain about their, you know, their ex or their boss or something, uh, and you've heard it a number of times, say, hey, I've heard that enough. Let, let's forgive. Uh, let's, let's get this. This is not good for you. This is not good for your health. And so I, I really emphasize in the book the, uh, the health benefits of forgiveness. Certainly, it, it's had not only an impact on your practice, but your own personal life, too. Mm. It, it has, yes. I, I've, I've certainly, um, obviously, I have to practice what I preach. So I, I um, uh, you know, I have to forgive. I have to, um, you know, actually have to make time in my schedule, usually lunch hour, to to spend talking with patients because oftentimes an office visit is not enough time. And so I, there's nothing I'd enjoy more than spending my lunch hour talking about a patient's spiritual concerns. It's, it's, a, it's just a beautiful time of my day. 
Um, and so, yeah, my, my life has changed, and I think, I think for the better. Well, we certainly appreciate you sharing with us tonight, Doctor. I mean, it, it just, just goes so nicely hand in glove with the topic we had in hour number one this evening of the importance of the church getting involved and impacting the world around us. And what easier, better place to start than to begin incorporating the power of prayer, not just in our lives privately, but also publicly as well, as Dr. Levy has done in his own practice. The book Gray Matter, a neurosurgeon discovers the power of prayer one patient at a time. The book published by Tyndale House and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as as well as through Amazon.com. And uh, once again, our thanks to its author, our guest today, Dr. David Levy. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.